Today on Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, Human Touch, the album. Hey everybody, you're listening to Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. This is the podcast where we used to talk about every Bruce Springsteen song alphabetically one by one, but now we're talking about the albums in chronological order. My name is Rob Carmack, and I'm joined here as always by J.B. Clark. Hey man, how you doing? J.B., I'm locked in my house for... Uh, yes. For for an undetermined period of time how's uh how's the pandemic treating you uh it's good here in mississippi man i'd be worried if i were in texas though the uh, lieutenant governor he's been talking about killing people for the economy you know our lieutenant governor is trying as hard as he can to start a suicide cult and uh i'm not having it oh my god we i i I had no idea i mean i've never really been a fan of dan patrick he's never been like one of my favorite people in the world uh but i did not know he was basically like jim jones uh, who works at the Capitol? I didn't. I didn't know we were dealing with that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, never in my life did I think that the governor of Texas would be someone who's who through this, like my opinion, has gone up a couple ticks of, and then the lieutenant governor, someone who <laughs> I even thought about <laughs> daily. <Yeah. laughs> like Dan Patrick was a person I tried not to think about daily, and now every day before I go to bed. You know, and I'm saying my prayers. I'm just like, and thank you for this, and thank you for this, and Dan Patrick. <laughs> like, I just bleep myself, and beep, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, look at that guy. Yeah, used used to be the thing that everybody knew Dan Tra- Patrick for was uh, transphobia and bathroom uh, policy. But now he's he's leveled up because now he's like, what if we just like let old people die? What if we what if we yeah. just kill kill off two or three percent of the population so that my uh, my stock prices can go back up? Uh, which, right. which, which, by the way, betray. Not only does that display a complete lack of humanity, it also just displays a complete lack of how economics work. Because when, yeah. when that many people die, it is not good for your economy, as it turns out. So it's not. No. So Dan Patrick is wrong, literally about everything. So, um, yeah, man, f that guy. So, uh, yeah, dude. From one Texan to another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, man, he's yeah. the worst. He's the very, very our uh, our governor, as dumb as he is, at least listened to the um, the uh, I have I have it on uh, on good authority that the uh, the the president or the vice chancellor in charge of health services at the at the main teaching hospital in Jackson that's part of Ole Miss called the governor and was just like stop quit and he was like okay <laughs> yes ma'am <laughs> oh that's nice okay <laughs> uh, can he, can she give Brian Kemp a call in Georgia. Because uh, that probably uh, needs to happen. I don't know, man. Georgia's got a lot of great hospitals, and he doesn't seem to be listening to any of them. Yeah. They're also the home of the CDC, so there's probably no hope for uh, Brian Kent. See, he's just he's just not uh, he's just not picking up the phone. Just him and Dan Patrick and Ron DeSantis just uh, doing a little Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid ending to this whole thing. And uh, yep. Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, so let um. Anyway, I hope before we get into this, hope everybody's doing okay. We're we're recording this obviously in the middle of uh, the the current pandemic situation, so we hope everybody's staying healthy and safe, and uh, you know, enjoy enjoying listening to Bruce Springsteen. If the thing that upsets you the most today is our take on Human Touch, then you had a pretty good day, all things considered. So let, let JB, let's get into this. Let's talk about Human Touch, the album, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, so yes. a little some some basic facts before we get this out of the way. Human Touch. Uh, the album came out on March the 31st, 1992. It was released the same day as Bruce's other album, Lucky Town, which we'll talk about on our next episode. 
Um, so, but we will talk a little bit about 1992. So the last album that Bruce has, had released was five years earlier, was 1987's Tunnel of Love. So this is a long time coming, but there's a lot of things that happened in between. But before we get to that, let's talk about 1992 as a year. So 1992, here are the other albums that came out in 1992. This is a, It's a pretty strong year. So we got Automatic for the People by R.E.M., one of my personal favorites. Very good record. Uh, Rage Against the Machine, their, their, their self-titled debut album. Slanted and Enchanted by Pavement. Classic album, Dirt by Alice in Chains, Little Earthquakes by T- Tori Amos, The Chronic by Dr. Dre, which was a juggernaut album from the 90s, uh, 40 yes. Ounces to Freedom by Sublime, Dirty by Sonic Youth, Check Your Head by The Beastie Boys, The Bodyguard soundtrack by Whitney Houston, which is another major album. That you, a lot of soundtrack albums this year. So there's the Bodyguard soundtrack album, uh, the Sister Act soundtrack, the Wayne's World soundtrack, which most, and the reason that's noteworthy is because the Wayne's World soundtrack is the thing that single handedly put Bohemian Rhapsody back to number one. On the charts, um, that the reason talking about, you know, the '90s were like the '90s and early 2000s were like soundtrack central. Yeah, very much so. So yeah, movies, especially movies that were released in the summer, like the big business was like getting getting major artists to put uh, original songs on their soundtracks. So uh, or or just like do this iconic uh, extended opening credit scene to Bohemian Rhapsody and watch that just climb the charts. So. So there was that. Uh, no doubt, uh, released their self-titled debut uh, debut debut in 1992. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic's "Off the Deep End," which is noteworthy because that's the first Weird Al album I ever bought, uh, which had him on the cover as the the Nirvana baby from uh, Nevermind. So that was that, that's a personal favorite of mine. Uh, the Black Crows released the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, which is a good album, and then JB the number one album. Of 1992, the biggest selling album of that year, Some Gave All by Billy Ray Cyrus, which included the the monster hit, Achy Breaky Heart, which we will definitely be talking about later on in this podcast. Well, and I have definitely talked about how much this record reminds me of some Billy Ray Cyrus moments. That's absolutely right. Like, yeah, this this album, Uh, Human Touch and and Billy Ray Cyrus, definitely... uh, I don't. I don't know if they were aware of each other in their composition, but they were definitely uh, smoking the same products, as it were. <laughs> and uh, I was just. I was just emailing with uh, Lori Pierce, uh, avid listener and correspondent for this podcast, yes. uh, and she. She's. She's always defending this record, which is. Which is. Is good. I'm always up for another opinion, and she brings up tons of. Of great points that we'll get to in a little bit about uh, why it's a great record and why we should re- reconsider it. Consider it, and and that's uh, one of the things I told her was like it's not that I don't think the performances are great necessarily, or that I don't like the new band or the backing singers. I think you know sonically all that's really good. I just I have so much trouble divorcing it from 1992. Yeah, you know, and that's that's one thing is that that I kind of need from a record is is that I can listen to it in a sort of in a vacuum and not in a year. Um, and that's not always the case. Sometimes the thing about a record that makes it great is, you know, is that it really encapsulates that year. Um, but I think it has to do something sort of more important to do that, you know, than just sound like the top selling record of the year. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, but well, that's and- kind of what we keep going back and forth on uh, when, when we uh, talk about this record, uh, Lori and I. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to argue that the work that they're turning in isn't strong work. Like everybody, like he's got great musicians. Bruce obviously is a great musician. He's got the, the resources and the, 
the cachet to, to get pretty much anybody he wants in the studio. The problem, in my opinion, we'll talk more about this as we go. The problem, the the big Achilles heel in on this album is the songwriting. I, I, th- I think Bruce is just not writing as well as he has previously or will again. I, I think it, I think this is a big dip in the in an otherwise almost unbroken streak of great songwriting for Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And, and one point that Laurie makes is that is that he makes some turns here that will benefit the rest of his career. I think that's probably uh, true. in the way he writes, in the way he sings, in the way he casts his bands, in the way he collaborates. Um, and and I fully agree with that. He does make some turns here that I think are great. And it, to me, it's just not quite there, you know? Yeah. So. Well, and we can talk. Yeah, we'll talk. And we've talked a lot about this already, as you know, as we've like gone gone through each track. But and, and we'll we'll get back into it. So, uh, the basic facts behind this, or pretty much to understand sort of this album and where it came from, there's there's a there's kind of a timeline you have to sort of follow. So, um, in 1985, Bruce Springsteen gets married to Julianne Phillips. He he is at this point not the biggest star in the world because Michael Jackson and Prince are. Uh, currently alive at this moment, uh, but he's he's one of the five biggest stars in the world at this point. So in 1985, he he marries supermodel Julianne Phillips. 1987, he releases Tunnel of Love. 1988, Bruce and Julianne Phillips divorce. Then in 1989, Bruce moves to Los Angeles with Patty Scalfa, who he will marry. And then also in 1989, Bruce calls every single member of the E Street Band one-on-one and lets them know he's going to be moving forward without them. So basically he ends his marriage, moves to Los Angeles and breaks up the E street band all within a 12 month span of time. Um, so he's, he's pretty much just burning the whole thing down and, and trying to start over as best he can. So later that same year, uh, Bruce and Roy Bitten, who was the piano player for the E street band have dinner together in Los Angeles and they talk about collaborating on some new songs. And this is where the new material for human touch begins. So Roy basically like buys his way or earns his way back into Bruce's, um, circle by ha- by basically going to dinner and offering some ideas that Bruce really liked. So, um, so then Bruce um, begins to recruit some studio players, most notably Randy Jackson on bass and jo- Jeff Percaro on drums, to help him sort of fill out some demos that he and Roy had been working on. Then in 1990, Evan Springfield, Springfield, oh my gosh! Uh, in 1990, Evan Springsteen is born, Bruce and Patty's firstborn child, and um, and then. Bruce has told Rolling Stone magazine, he says, throughout 1988 and 1989, so post-Tunnel uh, post of Love, he says, every time I sat down to write, I was just sort of rehashing. I didn't have a new song to sing. I just ended up rehashing Tunnel of Love, except not as good. And it was all just down and nihilistic. And he's what he's describing there are the songwriting sessions that would become Human Touch. And so, um, so now we know sort of like mentally the context of what what Bruce is sort of working through while he's writing these songs. Um, so the, the album is released in 1992 on March 31st, and the album reaches number two on the U.S. Billboard charts, and it was number 48 for the year on the Billboard charts. Uh, it has been certified platinum, which means it has sold over one million copies. And the personnel on this album is a full lineup of non-E Street Band members with the single exception of Roy Bitten. So it's uh, Randy Jackson on bass, Jeff Percaro on drums and percussion, Roy Bitten on keyboards, and then everybody else on this album is pretty much brought in a la carte, just one song at a time as needed. Even Patty, who is with him the whole time he's writing these songs, she only actually appears on two tracks as a musician. She does background vocals on Human Touch, the opening track, and Pony Boy, the closing track, just doing background vocals. Otherwise, she's completely absent from the album. And the producers credited for this album are Bruce Springsteen, John Landau, Chuck Plotkin, 
and Roy Bitten. So Roy is not just on the musician. Roy is not just listed as one of the musicians, or like he's got a couple so- uh, co-songwriting credits as well. He's listed as one of the producers. So Roy is like fully involved in this in this album. So uh, those are the basic facts. That's kind of that's pretty much where this album comes from. And did, is there anything I missed there? Is there anything that we need to add? Nope. That's those are the facts. That's the timeline. Yeah, that's where we're at. That's what we're dealing with today. It is. So, um, so JB, we, we t- I mean, most notably, I think, when you and I first started, like literally, I think in our first in-person conversation about the possibility of doing a Bruce Springsteen podcast, you said something to the tune of, I just don't have much to say about human touch. <laughs> yeah. And so now here we are doing an entire episode about human touch. So uh, get, uh, I, I realize you sort of like kind of talked a little bit about your correspondence with Lori, but before we get into the track by track, sort of like, what are you emotionally, mentally, where, where are you as we enter into this conversation? Well, I will say another part of that conversation that I think spurred it is I was working for a brewery called Lucky Town Brewery at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, it's yeah, this brewery called Lucky Town. And you were like, oh, are they Bruce Springsteen fans? And I was like, huh? Because <laughs> <laughs> they were named after the town that they're in. It's Gluckstadt, which is German for Lucky Town. And and so I just, it's just, yeah, I'd listened to Lucky Town before, but <laughs> it wasn't even top of mind because that's not what I think about, you know? <laughs> Until this podcast, I, I really didn't think about these records. I just, I didn't really have a lot of reason to. And when you say these records, you mean the 90s records, the 1992 records specifically. Yeah, the 1982 records. Yeah, and that's fair. I, I think these are not... And I mean, even Bruce has been pretty dismissive of this material. In, in his autobiography, in Born to Run, he says he released these two albums that were... And I forget exactly the quote, but basically he says, um, the most generous way you could describe people's responses to this to these albums was unenthusiastic <laughs> or indifferent. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I think he kind of shares that. And, and the, one of the reasons you know that is because he just... Almost never, other other than the title track, he almost never plays anything from these two records. Yeah. You know, well, I say that he does do um, Living Proof sometimes, and we'll talk about that next time. But um, Human Touch, he does, that that stays in the rotation pretty pretty well. Um, And I I saw him do All or Nothing at All once in Houston, but it was performed as a full-blown rarity. I think it was a sign request. So, um, but yeah, otherwise, like this album and Lucky Town are, pretty ignored in terms of like the, the Bruce Springsteen live show, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, they're, they're, they're not bad songs necessarily. I, I think compared mm. to the rest of his songwriting, they're, they're not great. You know, uh, I love a lot of what's happening sonically, but like I said earlier, it's kind of hard to divorce it. I think before we, I want to, I want to bring up some of Lori's specific points. Yeah. Just to, get, just to get a pop, Positive on the record for this record because yeah. I fully agree with her. <clears throat> so she says that um, he got more mature through Human Touch and Lucky Town, and that um, and part of it is emotional maturity. She says, "Thank God, enough songs about emotional alienation from his father and fetishizing loneliness." You know, <laughs> uh, fair enough. She, she says uh, the, that the characters in here, while maybe they're not all happy, they're at least least willing to entertain the idea that being happy can be as interesting as being sad. <laughs> that is well put. That's a good yeah, point. Which is like, yes. Uh, you know, whenever I read that, I thought, yeah, thank God. Cause we, we finally do get some characters, you know, I, I will say that without the characters in this record, we wouldn't have gotten a hopeful wrecking ball. You know, mm. 
it would have just been a sad wrecking ball. <laughs> and so, uh, yes, she, she's fully right about that. And her second point is that a soul man is born. And this is the first time that you really see. And he talks in his book a lot about early R&B and soul music influence. And in his earlier iterations of the band, there was a lot of it. But there's not a lot of it in his earlier music. It's pretty straightforward rock, which is, you know, all R&B and soul music influence. But it comes out a lot more in this record. And she says the first time she heard it, she thought he was doing some long lost soul covers from the 60s. Um, well, I mean, that, he's got the, Sam Moore, which... It, who was a, a a soul musician in the '60s? So like that's that's a fair assessment, right? Right, for and, sure. And and she gets to that in a second. But she says the Preacher Man revival minister of the reunion tour was born in L.A. sometime between 1989 and 1982. I mean 1992. I don't think she's wrong there either. Hmm. Uh, she says he could sing. This is where he stopped singing in his throat and started singing from his diaphragm in a controlled way. There's still a long way to go to get to Western stars. Hmm. This is where it sort of starts. Which, uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't know that his career would have been as long if he'd, uh, on, if he had never learned to explore the rest of his sort of diaphragm and, and chest when he sang. You know what I'm saying? Well, he also uh, he has throat surgery later on, which which forces him to change the way that he sings. Yeah, uh, and then she says he can sing with other people, specifically black people, and he sounds good when he does it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she says, look, Stephen Van Zandt duets, they're fun and usually on pitching in harmony. But uh, (laughs) But these songs were meant to be sung, not shouted. Um, She said, imagine him singing Man's Job with Stephen Van Zandt instead of Bobby King. I rest the case. (laughs) Fair enough. Tip of that to Lori on that uh, Her last point is like he he learns how to dance, you know. Uh, dance in the dark. He's all el- knees and elbows and barely keeping time. <laughs> he's that no Michael true. Jackson now, but at least he's got the beat. You know, if you're going to be a soul man, you got to learn to dance. Which I fully agree with all these points. And Lord, thank you for them. Uh, I'm, I'm coming around on it. I don't love the record necessarily. It's something I'm going to put on regularly. But I, I mean, I love the band, and I and I uh, I love what you know her points about. Like he is making a turn. And it is a turn that we will be rewarded for uh, enduring through, you know. So. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you're a writer. I mean, you, you you do creative work and you know as well as anybody that like you can't like you don't just churn out excellence without a little bit of struggle. And 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 sometimes the, the thing that you're reaching for just isn't happening. And and, and it, it's been five years since he put out an album and. And he's trying. He probably wants to feel validated over the fact that he broke up the E Street Band and moved to Los Angeles. Like he upended his whole life. He wants to feel like he's doing something meaningful, and he's he's trying really hard to make something new. But I, obviously, there's a lot of self doubt there, and so he's just you know like every everything you make isn't going to be great. And so every every great artist, I would argue, um, and I, I didn't come up with this argument. I think I think I'm borrowing this actually from Richard Beck, but. Um, Every great artist has at least a short season in what you might refer to as the wilderness, you know? And so meaning yeah. like they, they, they were still sort of looking for what, what is the next version of the thing that I'm supposed to do? And, and any, any artist that you love who had a long career, you can point back to a, at least a couple of moments where you're like, okay, this is their wilderness season. This is when they were still trying to figure it out, figure out the transition, the pivot. And that's, that's what this is. That's what the 1992 material is. And I think I think Lori's right. Like without the 1992 material, we we would not have got, the, the rising would not be what it is. We would not have gotten uh, Devils and Devils. Right. Like there's a, there's a lot of things that Bruce needed 
to explore later on, but he had to he had to go through, if if you will, the tunnel that was nineteen ninety two to get to the other side of who he became. Well, yeah, she, she said this is a step in, in the direction of maturity. And we were talking about uh, Richard Rohr before we started recording. I read this line this morning in his book, The Universal Christ. He said, the steps toward maturity, it seems, are always and ne- necessarily immature. Mm. What else could they be? Good moms and dads learned that a long time ago. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and he quotes Cardinal John Henry Newman, who says, to live is to change and to be perfect is to have changed often. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah, this is, this is, uh, I, I, I'm glad that we are re-exploring this. I, I don't think that I'm going to rate the record higher than, uh, my 2.96429, uh, <laughs> but, but I do think that it is more valuable than that. Well, it, it's also, it's telling too, that he didn't, for, for whatever reason, he felt like he needed to put out two albums on the same day, which seems commercially like a mistake. You know, it seems like you you want to stagger that a little bit so you don't so each album doesn't cannibalize the other, and that he decided to put this out with Lucky Town tells you like there were, there was something because he made this album first. It took him two or three years to write and produce the material on this album, while Lucky Town took him like what less than two months. So it's like th- this album. It seems like he never really fully felt comfortable with what this album was, and that's why he also had to put out Lucky Town as a way of saying like. I can do both. Like, if you don't like this, it's okay. If you don't like this, because there's this other one. It's a little bit more like raw and rock and roll, you know? And so, so it does sort of seem like even he is not totally sure how he wants to feel about this record, even as he's putting it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I like that it exists. I, th- I think it's an important artifact of, of who he was. And I mean, Lori's not wrong also. Like he's exploring the, the possibility that being j- joyful is just as interesting as being sad. Especially, again, we'll get to the next album, which is, you know, th- I, I think Lucky Town is an infinitely happier album than this is. Um, but it's also interesting that after he does those albums, the next thing he wants to do is a Streets of Philadelphia <laughs> album, which right, would have been right. <laughs> very sad. And that doesn't happen. And so what he does instead is The Ghost of Tom Jode, which is the arguably his Tom saddest Jode. album, you know? Well, and then The Rising. Yeah. Which is pretty sad. I mean, for sort of different reasons than introspection. But it does sort of play with he, the, the duality. He gets, I mean, then he moves into Devils and Dust and We Shall Overcome. Like, and the live recording of We Shall Overcome, you yeah, know? Yeah, 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 you're right. And, and the way that all of those songs are are sort of sad and protesty and talking about things that need to change, but they're also all so hopeful. And then Magic, uh, which, you know, you know, hey, they're blue eyes. We, you know, we got some... Um, is that our magic? No, hey, blue eyes is on American Beauty. It was a American. Uh, American it, Beauty. it was an outtake, an outtake. from. Uh, okay, I'm looking I at the list. Magic. Like I know it's around that time. Anyway, Magic has got some stuff that's not necessarily, you know, it's it's definitely saying like this is bad, but it points towards some hope. You know, working on a dream, we can skip. Uh, you know, <laughs> and then Wrecking Ball again, like pointing out stuff and pointing towards hope, and then High Hopes. Like you know, we're both not crazy about it, but. I don't know. I was listening to High Hopes yesterday morning, uh, with the dancing to it with the kids, and like that's a um, it's a helpful record. There's some, like, some great it. stuff. So. I'm, I'm not at all offended yeah. by High. If I to shoot, I mean High Hopes is not as bad as working on a dream. <laughs> I'll say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if, 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 I think I've. It's not a bad record. I've just never been maybe more disappointed in a release. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I it's the follow up to your favorite. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have exactly the, the relationship you have to High Hopes is the relationship I have to working on a dream, right? Because it, right. this is like 
this is the introduction, like my introduction to Bruce Springsteen was magic. This is like a perfect record. It's one of my all time favorite records. Then he puts out working on a dream and it's like, this doesn't sound the way I hoped it would sound. And you have the, like high hopes and wrecking ball have the same relationship. Yeah. You know? So yeah, that's, that's a natural, I think, I, I think it's n- not at all. Um, I, I think it's totally natural for you to feel that way about high hopes. Um, yeah. I mean- well, do you want to talk song by song? Yeah, let's do. Oh, well, first of all, just the narrative, because one of the things I think we've been trying to track on this in the series is uh, sort of the narrative arc. Because what we what we know about Bruce Springsteen is that he he tries to sort of connect a narrative arc to all of his albums. That his albums are not just like a collection of hit songs; they're they're a they're an exploration of an emotional journey. And quite frankly, one of my one of my complaints about this album is that the narrative arc of this album is. Uh, it's not that interesting. It quite. It's it's basically. I mean, the the opening song pretty much articulates what the narrative arc of the album is, which is loneliness is no fun, and I wish, I, and we we all want to be with somebody, you know, and which yeah. is not unlike the Tunnel of Love narrative arc. It's just like not unlike what Bruce himself has said, which was it's just a rehash of that thing. It's just a little bit more, um, a, a little more sour for some reason. You know what I mean? And so. Yeah. Um, yeah, loneliness is bad. Is the is is the narrative arc I, I, of all of his albums besides High Hopes? I, I think this has probably the the least well explored narrative arc. Yeah, in my opinion. So yeah. Um, anyway, all that to say, yes, let's get to the track by track. And I'm gonna go ahead and say this as I have the last couple of weeks. I'm not gonna have time to do the audio drops. We're we're still in quarantine. My kids are still in the house. My kids are still using my computer for school. So uh, the the narrative the, the narrative the the audio drops are they, they take some time, and so uh, so we're not gonna have time to do that. So if that's a that's a problem for our listeners, super sorry. Anyway, so yeah, uh, track one side one, title track Human Touch. Yeah, so this is a is a super strong start. It um, is. It's the best song on the album, and I think. I think it really explores that theme, that narrative theme you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, very, you know, like very literally, like I need a little bit of that human touch. Uh, it's got, um, I think that this song does well musically better. I think it does better musically what it's, what it, what the record wants to do. And, and what sort of what my problem with the record is, is like this record is a, of the time and not stuck in the time better than the rest of the record. You know? Mm, yeah. This the song like you've got the bass and the sort of like shimmery synth you know like bell hits in the back and the and the click on the snare you know it's very 1992. Um, there's some great guitar work but um but it doesn't feel like restricted to 1992. So I, I, that's why I like it. I, I like it. I, I think this lyrically, I think this is the best work he's he's done on this album. I mean, of, uh, quite frankly, I'll go so far as to say, of the two albums that he releases in 1992, this is the best song. This song, in fact, I think yeah. I think this is the only song that is in the Hall of Fame from the 1992 albums. This is a nine. This is a a um a um like maybe the top top three songs that he writes in the 90s. Um, I, think, I think that's right. Well, no. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. It's 100% right. So, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think so. And yeah, yeah. It, it's I this is a great song. I this song if the rest of the album had helped if the songwriting at of this song, if if he if he had continued to show up at this level with the rest of this album, we'd be talking about this as like one of his best albums, one of the most surprisingly great albums that he ever made. 
Um, yeah, it's just, it it does it the the songwriting just doesn't hold consistent. Now this song though, again, like like we're saying, this is a great song. Uh, the song peaked at number sixteen on the U.S. Billboard charts. It peaked at number one on the U.S. mainstream rock charts and number eight on the U.S. adult contemporary charts. So, uh, so the song was pretty yeah. w- well received in 1992. Um, you know the band Tegan and Sarah. Yeah. Tegan Quinn of Tegan and Sarah has two tattoos, two different tattoos with lyrics from this song. And (laughs) on on one forearm, she has a tattoo that says what you don't surrender. And on the other forearm, it says the world just strips away. That's incredible. Yeah. So like she's a big fan of this song and this album. She says she loves this record. So um, and I I love that there are people who love this record. I I would not want this to be an album that everybody just disdain. And I don't don't disdain it. I'm just I I think it's a slight disappointment in comparison to the rest of the body of work. So um, but I'm there's like some some guitar work and some production work in this song that you will hear people replicate throughout the rest of the decade. That's absolutely right. Uh, That's that's really great. And even into the 2006s and such, you know, like there's some guitar work in here that, that shows up on on like Matchbox 20 records yep. <laughs> uh, for sure. And on uh, uh, I'm trying to think who else. I had somebody in my mind. But anyway, it's a great song. It is a great song. And um, yeah, I and this is on my list of songs I would love to hear him do live. I've never heard him do it. Yeah, I, I would love that. So we go we go out of Human Touch into track two, which is Soul Driver. And we got some organ and some synthesizers happening here. Yeah, but we also have like some cool eerie guitar work that I love. Yeah, this is a good song too. I I don't mind this song at all as a track too. I it, I mean, quite frankly, tracks one and two start. Th- this is a good start to this album. I I don't mind Soul Driver at all. By the way, on on the organ, that's David Sanchez from original E Street Band lineup. Oh yeah, yeah. So he he Bring brought him back in. in. Yeah, so that, that's that's pretty cool. And I, I think maybe they have some chemistry that they kind of rediscovered. And maybe that's one of the reasons why this song is, is one of the better songs on the album as well. Yeah. It's super cool. It's got some like uh Depeche mode drumming going on, you know? It, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's, uh, it's cool. It's cool. And it, it is, it again, it, it is of the times, but also is not constrained to the times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I think makes it a really strong cut. So, yeah. And again, it follows sort of that similar theme of, disconnection and reconnection he's looking for someone that he has a a a richer connection with than just like hanging out and hooking up you know yeah and there's and it's it's called soul dropper there are some very soulful melodies and harmonies and some really great backing vocals on this song and i mean this is to Lori's point like a very strong vocal performance um from him and from from the rest of the singers on on the song yeah it's it's a good one. I I like this song a lot. Uh, I, if I, did yeah. we, we gave this straight fours, right? I don't have a yeah, straight fours. In front of me. Yeah, that's what I thought. Now, um, yeah, I got it right in front of me. I would have given it more if it didn't have like all of the uh, like pan flute stuff. <laughs> I think I'd have given it a five. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't mind the pan flute. Yeah, I like the organ solo. Like, there's some really amazing stuff in here. There's also some like uh, really reverby pan flute. Which, you know, who knew? you got to put some more reverb on the pan flute because it's not, I don't know, airy enough. I want to know, uh, of the four people listed as producers on this album, which one of them was like, who here knows somebody who has a pan flute? Yeah. <laughs> was that Chuck Plotkin? I want it. I want a pan flute, but I want it to hear, I want it to feel like a ghost playing it. <laughs> yeah. Can we, make, can we make the song sound like a haunted swamp? Uh, yeah. But, 
But I mean, like, the guitar work and the drumming is incredible. And the organ is lights out. It's great. Yeah, it is. It's it's a very good song. Now, speaking of songs yeah. that aren't very good songs, uh, let's let's go ahead and... <laughs> Go ahead and set off our mentions right now as we speak. Uh, 57 channels and nothing on. Woo, man. All right, let me just go ahead and get my praise out of the way. Okay. I have been trying to recreate this sort of bass feeling into a song that is good. Uh, and and that's, you know, I've kind of wondered, like, maybe the bass is so good that the song has to be bad. <laughs> I love the bass work in the song. I, I love it. I think about it every day. <laughs> well, I mean, it's Randy good. Jackson, right? Like, Randy Jackson yeah. is a kick-ass bass player. Like, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna do good work for sure. It's also like a very Randy Jackson bass part, you know. Mm. You know, it's just like you can't you know you can't wear this without one of those cool driving. We can't play this without one of them little driving caps on. <laughs> uh, well, you you have accurately described this as sort of like a David Lynch sort of like sounding kind of like mood. Yeah. that he's setting. Yeah, well, there's like uh, Randy Jackson playing bass, and then like Children of the Forest hitting things lightly, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, running through the smoke, that's right, you know, of your television screen, tick, tick, pop, pop, you know. Yeah, and then there's a giant it's, that appears, right? And it's a woman like, with a log, and the Children of the Forest tap on the log. The owls are not what they seem. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, jeez. By the way, th- this, I mean, speaking of that, 1992, also the year that Twin Peaks was canceled by ABC. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So. That was on network television. Again, I need to remind everyone, Twin Peaks was on network television. I, I just finished my season two rewatch of Twin Peaks and had that same thought, like, pretty much during, at some point during every episode, like, who, what, what TV executive was like, this is a great idea. People are going to love this. I mean, it was a great idea and people do love it, but like in what universe does that belong in the same network as, or not the same, in the same like world as like law and order in the magical world of Disney. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a, what, what a world. Yeah. <laughs> people were flipping through their television sets at like set reasonable hours of the evening during the week. And they saw that. And then they're expected to just like go to sleep, go shop at a grocery store. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. In the first episode, you're like, yeah, this could be a thing. And then the second episode, you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, man, it's bananas. It's great, though. The more the more time I spend in the in the lodge, the more the more into it I am. But uh... I, I the more time I spend in the lodge, the more time I want to not be in the lodge. <laughs> Well, anyway, I just keep thinking like I need to watch the new season, but also I don't need to drink that much anymore. (laughs) Dude, the new season is like unbelievable. But there's like an amount of drinking I have to do to be able to watch it, you know. And valid. I I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't. don't, Look, it's it's certainly not for everybody. In in no in no way does David Lynch make stuff and think like I think lots of people are gonna love this. That's right. Yeah. In in the other day, I was like, I really want to watch the new season of Twin Peaks, but then I was also like, but you know, I'm like in my thirties, and so I don't like have a drug dealer or even know how to get one anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll I'll tell you what. I just I I will say, like doing a full like deep dive Twin Twin Peaks rewatch has been the best possible distraction from the anxiety of being in a pan- in a pandemic because it requires it every different every ounce anxiety. of my brain energy. Yeah, for sure. Like wait, where does Bob come from? Like you know all all, all the things. Like I rewatched um Firewalk with me a couple of days ago and I spent 
I, I pretty much have been thinking about it ever since. And that's, that's, I mean, it's really the only way I can just like fully get my mind off of like the things going on in the world is just to, like, think what, what is the craziest possible thing I can just consume right now? And that's it. Yeah. So anyway, all that to say 57 channels and nothing on, uh, twin peaks was released in a world where there were really only like four channels. So, uh, 57 channels in 1992 was a sign of extreme luxury. Yeah. Now it's, and, uh, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's an interesting metaphor, but it's like, it seems a little played, but again, Ray Jackson does some work on there that I think about every day of my life. So yeah. I want to say this is probably of all the songs that we've ever covered. This is the one that and we, we did this on our first, we started our third episode that we ever did of this of this podcast. And we both notably did not like the song. The amount yeah. of time over the past four years that we have received emails or, or DMs or some sort of correspondence from people telling us that we just didn't get it. That, that, that the reason we didn't like the song is that we hadn't thought hard enough about didn't it. Didn't understand the metaphor. <laughs> or, but we also, every, every interaction we have with someone from this podcast starts with either, well, I like 57 channels, but I get it. Or, look, I'm no 57 channels apologist, but I do think y'all missed this one. Like, those are the two sentences that start 90% of new communication with people we haven't talked to before. <laughs> it, is, it is interesting, like, how many defenders this song has. And so, it, and like, I don't, I don't mind people liking the song. Like I said, I, I want to like everything that Bruce does, and I'm disappointed when I don't. But to go so far as to say, like, you guys just didn't understand it. Look, it's not that challenging of a metaphor is the thing. This song is about the excesses of consumerism and the inherent emptiness that it brings. This is, and what, what he's saying, obviously, the 57 channels isn't about his cable package. It's about his life. It's the same exact <laughs> song as Ain't Got You. I have all these things, but I'm still empty inside. Yes, we right. get that. And we also are on the record not liking Ain't Got You. That's right. Um, but uh, look, this is kind of like season two of um, True Detective. <laughs> And it reminds me, it honestly reminds me of the intro song to that. And uh, look, I love watching season two of True Detective. I think about it every day. See, that's it's something not I have not devoted my brain power to, but I, I will. The I'll performances are incredible. The intro music, great. It's, you know, it's like, I love it, but it's not good. <laughs> that's how I feel about this. <laughs> that's how I feel about the movie uh, The Paperboy. With, uh, with, with, uh, Matthew McConaughey. What's the guy's name from High School Musical? Zach Efron. <laughs> Zach Efron. It's incredible. It's not a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, cinematography, the, the photography, the director of photography, the colorist, the actors, incredible. It's not a good movie. 57 Channels and Nothing On, it's a big metaphor. It's a big swing. There's a lot of great bass going on. There's some really weird production. I really appreciate what they're trying to do here. It's not a good song. No. Which is funny because this is, other than the title track, this is the only other single from this album that was released. That, yeah. So like the, the record company was like, this is the one we have the confidence in. Um, this is it. it. It did not perform as well as Human Touch did as a single. It peaked at number 68 on the U.S. Billboard charts, which is not, not great. I mean, it cracked the top 100, but I mean, obviously 68 is not where you want to peak. Um, if you're if you are Bruce Springsteen, um, Chuck Plotkin, one of the co-producers on this album, says um, th this song was Bruce's first Bruce's first thing where you could tell he had heard some hip hop. 
And (laughs) Plotkin says, I would have gone all the way to hip hop with it. Bruce seemed to me to be prepared to go that far. So Plotkin heard this and he was like, let's do some hip hop on this album. So, I mean, and first of all, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think that would have been a disaster. (laughs) I I think super glad that Bruce wasn't like an old white guy doing hip hop. Yeah, up in the nineties. Like, uh, we got enough of that. That was everyone's strategy for like putting out a training video. It was like, oh, the employees aren't getting it. Let's make it into a rap. Let's do a rap. Let's do an employee training rap. Yeah, uh, and so and I mean, it makes sense that people in Bruce's orbit were thinking like this because uh, I I just referenced this, but Aerosmith had recently had a major revival, thanks primarily to uh, them collaborating with Run DMC on Walk This Way, basically taking Walk This Way and turning it into a a rap hit in in the late eighties, and so there were definitely seventies rock it's stars. Notably, Steven Tyler did not rap; he sang a song. That's right. They, they, they sang the, rap, the chorus. Yeah, Steven Tyler sang the chorus. Joe Perry played the guitar, and Run DMC did the rest. So, um, yeah, it changed. I mean, like everybody's life, but it changed my life. <laughs> well, it. I mean, it, it. What it did was it brought hip hop and rap into the conversation with. With rock and roll, which and and all, and I mean not not to mention just fully reviving Aerosmith, which were pretty much just gone um, at that point. So um, so yeah, understandably there were lots of 1970s era rock stars who saw that and were like at, at the very least like their managers and their businessmen or like people in their in their orbit who were like, what if we could do that? What, what if we could give Bruce his own like walk this way? And they didn't do that, thankfully, and I'm afraid it probably would have been closer to JB. This is you're, you may be the only person listening who will get this, but uh, similar to the Stephen Curtis Chapman collaboration with DC Talk uh, <laughs> for a little song called "Got to Be True." Um, Got to be true. This was wasn't that like two number two letter B? Yeah, it was. So basically, yeah. it, this is a Christian music uh, comparison here, where there was a a a rap trio named DC Talk who were two white guys and one black guy. And and the black guy was not the guy who did any of the rapping. He was he was a singer, and one of the white guys was the guy who did the We're going to actually rapping. talk about him in our bonus episode today. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Um, I'm excited. Well, then let's get through this so that we can... <laughs> anyway, yeah. so it, 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 was, it was a very, very embarrassing sort of dad rap situation. And um, I feel like if Bruce had, had ventured into hip-hop, as Plotkin had maybe suggested... It probably would have been closer to that, and I, I don't know that it would have been great. So I'm, I'm glad it worked for Aerosmith, and we got a couple extra years out of them as a result. And obviously, it, it was really good for Run DMC as well. But uh, I, I just I don't I don't see Bruce I, I don't see that going great for Bruce. I mean, uh, like, no. to, to Lori's point, like he does sort of channel some like um, old style soul music with Sam Moore here, um, and I think that was probably good. But uh, going going directly to like. I'm I'm glad nobody in Bruce's orbit was like, let's just get Dr. Dre on the phone and see if he can collaborate with you on something. <laughs> I don't know that that would have gone great, you know. So, and, yeah. And I think it's interesting that Black uh, heard 57 channels and was like, what? What if? What if we did that? What if we were full rap here? Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Well, I think that we have devoted uh, enough time to 57 channels. Agreed. Let's. let's uh, yeah, we got we got to we got to roll. So let's talk about "Cross My Heart," uh, which again is a song that we both uh, gave low ratings to 101.5. Um, it's just it's just like kind of boring songwriting, I guess. Yeah, it, it is why we gave it that. It's definitely one of those like Billy Ray Cyrus sounding type of songs. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of like the harmonics on a guitar, like boop boop, you know, just like all throughout it. It's just very, um, it's very uh, 
90s it's like fine it's the same it's just a thing um it's it's nice it sounds nice but it's just it's just what they it's just what they did then it's yeah. not it's not special well also um, it, it does borrow heavily from a 1958 song of the same name written by sonny boy williams in the second and it borrows so much from it that bruce actually had to give a co-write credit to williams yeah. so so even like so he's not really i mean it's not it's not even really his sound like he, he's, he's he's just sort of borrowing half from like 90s contemporary stuff and then half from this one song from 1958 and it, it kind of just comes out as what well, our, our original exploration of this. And I think this might've been the first time I brought up Billy Ray. Yeah. Is it like, this sounds like Billy Ray Cyrus covering Sonny Boy Williams. Yeah. That's a, that's a good assessment of this actually, I think. Yeah. So yeah, cross my heart, not, nothing, nothing too terribly special to write home about. Then we go into track five, which is Gloria's eyes, which has some great guitar work. Yeah. That's all I have. My, my, my notes uh, are entirely two words, which is driving guitars. Yeah, it's it's great. It's super rock and roll. It's not too shimmery, uh, and I think it fits into the era. Um, and it, yeah, it, it feels like the drum. I think I said in our original one, like the, the guitars kind of and the drums kind of remind me of like a the TV show Twenty One Jump Street uh, with Johnny Depp way back in the day, like a chase uh-huh. scene, you know, in that show. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's good. And so yeah, it's fine. Yeah. I think that's it's, right. uh, it's all right. It's, it's, it's a little too shimmery, uh, uh, vocally though. I think so. Like the melody, there's just like too much reverb on them. So yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Then I gave it three, you gave it a two. Gloria's know. eyes. I gave it two. Yeah. Oh man. I probably should have given it a three because the guitar, the guitars I mean, are good, but there's not anything like songwriting wise going on. No, which it, I think was our big. Yeah. Yeah. That, our, our big, take away from from most of the songs on the record is like there's not a whole lot going on i I love that he's like doing some singing i love the guitar work the guitar work's great yeah well i mean and we mentioned before like the musician the the problem with this album is not the musicianship the problem with this album is is the lyrics in in most situations i think and the production (laughs) yeah that's probably right too and i mean i i understand that he's trying really hard to sound like an early 90s rock artist like he's he's trying not to become an irrelevant guy from the 70s like that's i i think that that's a big part of what's driving him but i think he's leaning yeah. way too heavily into the the shimmery production value which obviously and like like i said we'll talk about this more next time but in lucky town he kind of um recorrects for that a little bit and to i, I think successful results but um well, yeah and, early, and in the 80s he did a good job of just like taking what he liked from the eight like what was inspiring to him from the 80s yeah and making it his. And later on, you know, in the 2000s and the 2010s, he does the same thing. It's like he just listens to a lot of great music and then writes his music. And that's that's key instead of trying to replicate something. I think that's and I, right. I don't know. Maybe he was like just mainline some of the Billy Ray Cyrus's early demos. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I, I would be interested to hear him talk about like what, what were the things he was like really responding to musically during this time. Um yeah. So, well, I mean, now that said, the next track, track six, is "With Every Wish," which I think lyrically is probably one of the better songs. I don't, I don't love it yeah, in general, but it's, it's not bad. Some... What? Yeah, we both gave this three and a half. I love the trumpet. Yeah, the trumpet's this. good. Very reminiscent uh-huh. of "Meeting Across the River." Yeah, it it reminds me of the one man submarine ride, John Mayer song from. Um... <laughs> One of his later records. Yeah. I just really love that song. But it's just sort of like this interesting story about um, 
Big Jim, you know, the catfish <laughs> and, and falling in love and, uh, you know, just fishing and falling in love and growing up and um, dying. Right. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it does sort of have like this doomed quality to it. Like they're like it's it's this duality of doing something that that feels good. That is that like basically getting the thing that we wish for, but also realizing there's a dark element to that thing, you know, and like there, there's a loss with it, with everything that we get that we wanted. We, we lose something inherently also. And it's, it's, it's very reminiscent of like the, the, the fable of the monkey's paw. Right. And so, yeah. so yeah, it, it, it kind of deals, which I, I think that's probably like, that's one of the things that Bruce knows how to do. Like we've talked a lot about like juxtaposition, like the, the juxtaposition of so, something that we want and something that we lo- that we've lost. And those two things sort of having to exist um, on opposite sides of the same coin, you know, and like the idea of with every wish there comes a curse. Like, yeah, that that I bet this is a lot of I bet, I bet Bruce is feeling that like that about his entire career, right? Like he wants to be a rock star. Okay, like he gets to be one of the biggest rock stars in the world. But what are the costs? Like, what what are the things that he has to lose as a result of that? Well, he loses his um, like the the ability to just like do what he wants when he wants to do it. He loses the ability to make relational mistakes and not have people write about it in the tabloids. You know, like there, there, there are things that, um, there, there, there's a cost to the things that Bruce has, has gotten. Like, I, and I think probably this is a more interesting version of 57 channels and nothing on it, you know, because 57 channels and nothing on is like, I got all the things that I wished for and I'm still empty inside, but this is like, I got all the things that I wished for and those things were good, but there was also an ache that came along with that. There was a, um, and I, I I've used this in in sermons before, but like the idea of um, in in Genesis three where there are these curses, which, which is like one of the curses is um, in child there will be great pain in childbirth, which isn't just like physical pain. It's the idea that um, in your moments of greatest joy there will also be a sense of loss, you know, and yeah. that that yeah you you get to you get to bring a child into the world and you get to have like this un, unbroken bond with this child, but one day the bond will break and because the the child will move out. You know, and so the with every wish is sort of that same same sort of, you know, two sides of the same coin. Like, yeah, you, you can have these these gifts, but you also like the curse of the gift is that there is there's there, there's a cost to it as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's even simpler than that. It's just like the laws of gravity, you know, like, mm, yeah, or, or force or whatever. With every action, there's equal opposite reaction. Uh, just like everything has a consequence, everything has to be kept in balance, you know, like there has to be as much good and bad, uh, white and dark, light, you know, light and dark, um, you know, it's Star Wars, it's the force, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's the Bible, it's, it's everything. It's uh, every, it reminds me yeah. of this, this, this like nature documentary I watched when I was a kid. It was like, maybe it was like a Bill Nye thing where these kids were in like a nature simulator and they, they said, all right, you can do anything you want to change the environment. I said, oh, let's get rid of bats. Bats are gross. And then they're just like covered in mosquitoes, you know? Like, oh, no. And so uh, they were trying to kept like trying to add and subtract things just to like fix all their mistakes. And really, it was just like there has to be balance. Yeah. So uh, that's what this is. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, that's an apt way of putting it. It's just sort of like the law of gravity. And, and, it, and it all is almost sort of like an answer to the problem that he sets up or not an answer, but almost like the, the answer that there is no answer to the problem that he sets up in the first song, which is. The thing he most longs for is human connect is human connection is is a little bit of human touch, and this song is almost saying back to that song, yeah, but you know that that's not going to satisfy you like that that will that will not fill all the gaps for you you know that there will still yeah. be loss. So I I, th- I think this song if if you had to pare this song this album down to like ten songs or like 
if you had to tighten this, this album down to a thematic cohesive, cohesive unit, uh, you would you absolutely have to keep this song. This, this song is is one of the things that sort of connects the ideas that he's trying to put together here. Yeah. I mean, it goes human touch, soul driver, uh, glorious eyes with every wish. Yeah, I think, that's you right. know, and then track uh, seven, right, cut the next one, roll the dice. I I'm an apologist for this song. Roll of the dice. Yeah, is lyrically th- this song is not good. Um, but I, I think it, it has a it has a fun rock and roll kind of quality to it that I don't mind it. You know, like it is musically, it almost reminds me of No Surrender in that, like, yeah, there, there's some it's a little disjointed theme wise, but it's it's fun enough as a rock song that I don't mind it. You know, I do love the melody for the the refrain. There's not a chorus, but the fool's paradise and just another roll of the dice. Like, I love the way he sings that, like the meter of it. Mm hmm. Yeah, and the drums are fun. It's a fun '90s rock and roll song. You're right. Yeah, um, but yeah. it's a. I, I think it's a metaphor. I think what we talked. One thing we talked about is like it's a metaphor that he does this a, just a few times, but he just like sort of takes this metaphor and just really just rings it out. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and maybe I mean you, you could draw that back to the the problem with this whole album is that like when when he locks in on a metaphor, he he will overplay it. But also the metaphor is it's a little too overt. It's a little. It, I mean, he, he's it's just too. It's it's like it's a little ham fisted, you know. Like he it, like the thing that makes some of his other songs better is is that the metaphors are a little bit more um, nuanced and subtle and clever. Well, Whereas here, it's just like yeah, man, he's just deft. taking the biggest possible swings, you know. Right, right. He's just like, all right, roll the dice, uh, casinos, high rollers, heists, heists and dice. Uh, <laughs> We're living yeah. in a dollhouse. <laughs> yes, it reminds me of Dollhouse. <laughs> yeah, Dollhouse, tiny furniture, tiny people. Um, just gotta stay windows, in theme, no matter what. Tiny yeah. doors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is like he went to a casino. Uh, tiny, was like tiny little toilet paper, just like a little bitty, like half quarter, you know, like point two ply, <laughs> little bit. Uh, tiny cabinets, tiny door handles on the cabinets. Tiny uh, everything, boss. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you get it. it. You don't get it. I'm talking about like tiny carpet. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, th- and this is definitely one of those songs, which is just like he he takes a metaphor and he just absolutely just beats it into submission. So it's nowhere near as bad as Dollhouse. No, um, no. And we'll talk about Dollhouse this eventually too. Song, Say I think it's great. And I think the next song, Real World, is on the truncated version. This is a good song, straight forward from us. I love this song. Uh, great. Great uh, vocals. Yeah. Um, great melody. Super solid performances. Um, I think the production, the only, only count against this is like the production's a, production's a little dated, you know? Well, and even Bruce himself looks back and he, because there's an acoustic version of this song from a live show that he did in 1990. And even Bruce will, will tell you he prefers the, the acoustic version of this song. So yeah. my guess is if he could go back, he probably would pare this down a little bit on the production value. Um, this is one of the ones well, with Sam Moore, right? But, like, uh, yeah. Yeah. That helps. And the, um, the bass is like doing almost nothing, but it is doing the shit out of almost nothing. Mm. You know, like it's really, the performances are great, even though they're like super pared down. Yeah. Uh, yeah there's I, some really good chimes in there too. Oh, there is. Yeah. I, I do per- like the chimes. It's good, man. Ain't no church. Yeah. Well, to, to kind of go along with the church bells, ain't no church bells ringing. And then there's the big chimes. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I like the song. I, I, I think this is definitely a keeper. If, if you had to if you had to pair this down to a 10-track album. Um, of course, this, this was released in the era of CDs when people were adding songs and not subtracting them, So, which is right, probably right. one of the problems with this album in general. Um, and then uh, the ninth song is my second favorite song on the album, which is All or Nothing at All. Yeah, which I honestly probably need to reassess. Like, this is a good song. I think maybe it's a four. It's we'll, we'll it's a five for me. I this put is a the, pin in it. Talk. Say what? It, it was originally a four for you. I thought was it? I, I've upgraded it. Then it's it's a five. I, I I saw him do it live in Houston, and it was oh, it was great, man. I I, I really liked it. It's a fun live song. Now we'll I, call it a we'll call it a four to five then because the uh, the harmonies on all where they're both like coming up are so 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 good yeah. and sam moore uh no he's not on this one no he's not uh but the harmonies are incredible on this one so it is it is funny that because like because of the theme of the, this album the, the theme of this album this this works because the whole album is about connection and commitment um it is sort of funny that like you have this 70s rock god who's it's like you know it's super rock and roll a lifetime commitment to one person i want it yeah. all or nothing at all <laughs> Um, but I like it. I, uh, I like that he hey, did a song about monogamy, and it is like, yep, this is gonna be it. <laughs> it's gonna be rock and roll. So the yeah. um, but I mean, it makes it a little sexy, you know. I think so. I like it. He makes it sexy, and I think that's that's the problem. We make a commitment necessarily isn't sexy in our culture. Yeah. Which you know, we can talk whatever you want about monogamy, but I think commitment to someone is is cool, and I think making it you know he makes it sexy here. And one note, uh, I could just because I have on the notes to this song, I, I put in the liner notes from the record for whatever reason. Um, and we said that Randy Jackson played bass on Fifty Seven Channels and Nothing On on this episode. Uh, previously, we said it correctly, but Bruce actually played bass on Fifty Seven Channels and Nothing On. I was gonna say that because he because this is Fifty Seven Channels is one of the songs that he he wrote specifically while he was wrote thinking, on like, the I'm gonna do a whole bass album. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't know which one of us said it, but someone one of us said on this episode that Randy Jackson played bass on 57 channels and nothing on. That is not correct. Bruce played it in there. Randy Jackson played bass the rest of the record. Um, which is so. funny. Like the, the one time you need like a top shelf bass player, Bruce is like, I got this. You know, like I got it. I'm sure Randy was like, you don't want me to like try <laughs> to, to do this for you. Like, no, man, why don't you give me that uh, Squire P over there in the corner and I'll uh, knock it out real quick. Let me show you how it's done, Randy uh, Jackson. Okay. <laughs> I like to think that Bruce plays like a Mustang, uh, like a short scale bass. But in reality, he probably plays like the heaviest, bassiest bass. I don't know what his bass would be, but like a PV, uh, whatever this PV with the movable humbuckers in the middle. I bet that's what he plays, actually. I'm anyway. Sure, I'm sure there's, there's someone uh, out there who knows exactly what bass he's playing. Got, yeah, someone out there. So, um, track 10. Yeah, it's a good song. Track 10. Track 10 is Man's Job. Man's Job. Uh, this is another one which, with uh, BGVs from Sam Moore, which makes it cooler. Yes. And the guitar's good. Uh, it's, it's just, it's kind of chill. It's uh, um, early 2000s worship music would steal a lot yeah. of guitar stuff from, from the style. But um, I don't know. I like this. I think I remember you saying like you didn't love the theme of it, You did, like the man's job. Yeah, there's two, uh, there's two different songs on this album that deal sort of with like traditional masculinity and like what it means to be macho. And that just that turns me off so hard. Yeah. And I, and I always thought that um, I don't think that he's talking about necessarily traditional masculinity. Like if you, if you see it through the lens of like a man and who's not like a macho man, you know, but like a man who who is committed, then then it's a it's a really sweet song. Yeah. But but I could see, you know, both sides. And I think we probably wore that out when we talked about it. But a masculine. Bobby Keegan said more. Sensitive. Make it incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, anytime you bring Sam Moore so, into the room, uh, you, you get an extra point, for sure. Like, he's a... I mean, th- this guy's a legend. So, it it does... Vocally, it's very good. I gave it for four. You gave it a two and a half. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, those are, those are good. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's about right. The guitars are, are really nice, too. It's just some cool stuff. So. Yeah. All right, now... There's, like, some 60s guitar and also some, like, 90s guitar mixed together, so... Yeah. Yeah. And now your favorite song on this album, I Wish I Were Blind. <laughs> Track I love this song. I know you do. Uh, <laughs> Garth Brooks wishes he'd written this song. It's just funny to me. Well, t- talk about why you like this song. Well, it's just like the bluesiest, <laughs> saddest thing, you know? It's like, it, so it's got like the, uh, it's like a 90s slow jam guitar solo, disaffected vocal kind of situation. But like, uh, you know, Bruce has tried to play the blues a lot and and I don't think he's done it super, super well when he tries to, like when he incorporates blues into his music, it's good. But whenever he like tries to play the blues, I don't think it's great. But then he writes this song and he's saying like, when I see you with him, I wish I didn't have eyeballs. That's right. At that that is sadness, you know, like <laughs> he got it. Uh, and it makes me laugh, but it also makes me like, I've been that sad for mellow, you know, it's so melodramatic and like there's something, I don't know. There's something human about that melodrama, you know, like when someone leaves you, your first thought is always like, I'll wait, I'll be here, you know? And like that a week later, no one is ever really there, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's like, you're right. We should have broken up. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that first week, you're just like, I'll I'll tear off my arm if you'll come back. You know, like, thank God no one ever tore off their arm. You know, uh, some people have, you know, but whatever. Look, Van Gogh famously cut off. You're glad he never. Right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. (laughs) When I corrected myself. (laughs) I mean, yeah, you're so sort of glad. Yeah, you're also you're you're kind of glad that, that it never came to that, you know. In the end, you're like, yeah, 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 this worked out. So now, all, all my criticisms about the melodrama that is this song, I do think that if you did do a pared down version of this album, you would you definitely need to keep the song. Yeah, because it, it does it. First of all, it's musically it's pretty well written, but also um, it it definitely gets at the theme. It is it is in the center bullseye of the theme of this album, which is loneliness is misery and. Um, and I'm just I, I want a little of that human touch and to see other yeah. people, people that you felt like you were supposed to be with end up with somebody else and to see them from your vantage point seem happy while you're here lonely and um, not happy is uh, that, that there's a certain emotional hell that kind of comes along with that. And this song does a pretty good job of articulating that, if, if not at a like slightly well, heightened way. I mean, the first verse is just like, I love the cottonwood blossoms in the early spring. I love to see the message of love that the bluebirds brings. But when I see you walking with him down along the strand, I wish I was blonde when I see you with your man. You know, like, (laughs) oh, man, you know, like I I would never see you again if it meant that I never had to see you with him Mm -hmm. is the second verse, you know, like, ah. Yeah, th- this song could have been written by a 16-year-old kid who just got a guitar. Oh, yeah. And well, and dumped. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. This is this is a this is a breakup song, to be sure. Yeah. Um well, then then we get into speaking of breakups, The Long Goodbye, which is track 12. The Long Goodbye. Yeah. And this is this is another pretty solid cut off this this record. I, um, yeah, I, musically this song is really good. Yes, yeah, killer guitar tones, man. This record has great guitar tones. Yeah, it does. Um, they're just super dated. <laughs> this this song specifically has like 
I've talked about this a bunch, but like when you go to Toys R Us and or <laughs> rest in peace Toys R Us, but when you go to like the toy aisle and you pick up just like the plastic guitar and you hit a button and it makes a sound, uh, like it plays the guitar for you, it plays this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's probably several of those here. Uh, yeah, so. So, I mean, this is him sort of rec- reckoning with sort of like ending things. And I mean, like we mentioned before, like he's he's dealing with, he he just left the Jersey Shore. He broke up the East Street Band. He broke up his, or his marriage has ended. And so like he's he's dealing with a lot of long goodbyes. And I feel like there's a part of him that was like, it took a really long time to get myself to, to a place where I could cut all those ties. And so it probably did feel like just a really long kind of drawn out process of trying to restart his life and end what had been a pretty significant chapter of it. So this to me feels like a very honest song from him. And so it probably is thematically on point with the rest of the record. Yeah. And this is like this. This is almost like uh, a a, uh, case study of why this record doesn't quite get it for me is like with a little bit better production, like a little bit less specifically 90s production and different drumming, you know, and just a little tweaking on those guitar tones. You've got a timeless classic. The melodies are great, you know? Yeah. He's doing some really cool stuff. He's got that sort of like yodely lilt that was popularized in pop music in the 90s, you know? Yeah. Throughout. Um, and then really like does it, you know, sort of like in the in the bridge and refrain. Some great guitar work. Some some just really cool. The band is just really coming together to do some cool stuff. And, and with just a little difference in the way it sounds and the guitar tones, you know, maybe if you turn some of that distortion into some drive and you take some of the shimmer off of it and you give the drums like a little more to do and a little less just like straightforward on the snare, you have a song that exists, you know, that could exist in the eighties and could exist in the nineties and could exist in the two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right. And I I think it'd be cool if he, I don't even know, I, I didn't look up all the previous uh, performance dates. I'd be interested to see when the last time he performed this song because I, I bet the song is really good live. Yeah, um, I'm sure it is. And I mean, his band is great on this song. Yeah, they are. Um, and then you've got the the next track, track 13, which is Real Man, which is another one of the sort of quasi macho types of songs. This song is fully redundant. I, I musically, it's fine. I'm not offended by it musically. I think as its placement on this album, its existence on this album is utterly pointless in my opinion yeah it i love that it like starts off like you know it's manly aerobics yeah and then (laughs) woo, you know it just sounds like we're about to listen to gloria estefan or something but i mean for its time and place it is a killer pop song like if if he is trying to write a record that exists only in 1992 he did it in this song. He wrote this song is, is a 1992 song thematically, even like even the problematic stuff that you feel like is problematic. Like that is very 1992. The synth synth is very 1992. The melodies. And, and he, like Lori said in her email, like he's singing really good yeah, and impressive is. melodies that are great pop melodies um, while still being true to sort of his rock and roll voice. So it's just, he does it. It's just not like, it's not my bag and it's not really his either no and and i mean and quite frankly this is my problem with this whole album is that the the tracking is all over the place like one of the things that has made bruce springsteen great up to this point is that he has meticulously tracked the narrative arc of all of his albums there's a starting place and there's a there's an ending place and the journey in between feels like an intentional emotional like move 
This this album has none of that, in my opinion. And maybe Bruce could sit down with me and explain to me what what it, what it is. Maybe I'm just not seeing it. But he he just kind of jumps around. Like like there is no. I mean, look look at Tunnel of Love in contrast, right? Like Tunnel of Love is so the rise and fall, and then the hopeful once again rise of, um, of love and romance and connection, right? This album yeah. doesn't have that. This this album is in one place he's like I long for a human connection, and in another place he's like. He, I, he he wants it all or nothing at all. But then later on, it's it like he wishes he was blind because he when he's you know what I mean. And so, and this song is like if you were gonna have this song on this album, it needed to happen earlier. And you need to make the choice between either having this song or Real World or I'm sorry or Man's Job because this song and Man's Job do exactly the same thematically. They do the same work. It's just that Man's Job has Roy Moore on it, which or Sam Moore on it, which make Roy Moore. Oh my God, um, <laughs> Roy Moore. Let's pretend like I didn't say Roy Moore. Um, you goofed up <laughs> Roy Bitten and Sam Moore not Roy Moore Roy Moore is a child molester I'm talking about Sam Moore legendary uh, <laughs> legendary soul, soul singer vocalist anyway songwriter so, so Man's Job has better musicianship and better background vocals on it than this this song and they're both trying to say basically the same thing and you just don't need it yeah you know and now, like, yeah this has good musicianship. It's just not. This is a bunch of really pro musicians trying to make a song that exists in a very specific space, and they do. This is great musicianship. It's just not necessarily like a good. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like uh, if you ask a really great chef to make some box mac and cheese, like <laughs> yeah. you can nail it. It's still box mac and cheese. Like that's what this is. Like that's this a, is that's really a great, great comparison. That's a really good comparison. Incredible yeah. musicianship. This could have been. If you take the lyrics out, but you still have the melody somehow, this could have been the intro to Full House or Step by Step. <laughs> yeah, that's that's correct. Um, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't mind the musicianship. I, I think, and it is catchy. It's like I listen to it, I'm like, okay, it's in my head a little bit. But like, if you're looking at this album as as a singular work, this it makes no sense that this song is where it is. Right, right. That's true. I will say the the chord choices in this song are top notch. They they chose the right chords. <laughs> well, Bruce is very good at choosing like the, the progressions. Right I don't know. He has all the best chords. Everybody yeah. says so. It's 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 not good uh, for like what for like him and his career and the narrative structure of this record. But for like trying to write the fact that this wasn't a single like a radio single is is sad. It almost makes me want to rate it because I want to rate it higher for the reasons that I rated a lot of these songs lower. In that like it does exist in the space. It makes me feel like they were trying to solve whatever the math problem the algorithm for ninety two was. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. But but also the fact that it wasn't a single makes me think that they accidentally wrote it, you know, to be this good of a single. So. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I don't know. I think that's right. And yeah, I mean Either way, I think Yeah. We've 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 this you know, we've covered it. <laughs> For sure. Well, and then um and then the, the album closes in the most unpredictable of ways with uh Pony Boy. And uh, we, we have several listeners who are deep apologists for this. Uh, Bella Pori yes. has talked about how her former roommate, this is her favorite Bruce Springsteen song. Uh, so this is obviously a cover. Bruce did not write this song. Um, it, it, apparently he remembered his grandmother singing this song to him when he was a kid. And so this is sort of an ode to Bruce's entry into parenthood. Uh, so Bruce and, and Patty closed this album with the song as, as an ode, again, to their status as new parents. And then that that's in 1992, and so in 2005, Bruce told a journalist about because uh, Bruce and Patty's 
firstborn child is Evan, and so they would sing the song to Evan, and so the song is a, a dedication to Evan. And in 2005, Bruce tells a journalist, Evan hates that effing song about Pony Boy. <laughs> and to that, I say, me too, Evan. Me too. I think, I think that's sweet. And on the truncated version, like, you could figure out a way to maybe, like, shoehorn it in, but... Um... It's it it on on the backside of real man, you know. It's very weird. It's it, like I, it makes no hell? sense that you would go out of real man and into Pony Boy. Well, quite frankly, like yeah. Lucky Town is the is the album where he's sort of reckoning with the things he's grateful for in his life. It's you know it's where you've got um, I mean we'll talk about this next time, but it, it, it's where you've got oh god, what's the name of that song? Where uh, the song about when when Evan was born, the, the I saw him do it. Why am I drawing a blank right now? Living Proof? Living Proof, thank you. Yeah, so it's got, like, Living Proof, and it's got um, Better Days. Like, if you if you had put this at the end of Lucky Town, I would have been like, okay, I, I don't love the song, but I get the trajectory of it. Th- like you said, pairing this with yeah. Real Man makes no sense. That is bonkers. No. So, yeah, they, they threw this on at the end. It thematically does not at all belong <laughs> on this record, uh, or possibly on any record, but uh, that's that's for a different discussion. So yeah, um, the whole thing begins with Human Touch and it ends with Pony Boy. Now, those two things as bookends, if you're going to track like the journey out of his previous divorce and into sort of his new romance with Patty and into parenthood, if you're if you're closing it with Pony Boy and entering into it with Human Touch, that's great. If those are the two bookends, that's fine. The rest of this album makes that a very confusing narrative. Right, yes. It's like trying to use the map that you get at the front gates of Six Flags to get you to Six Flags. <laughs> That's well put. <laughs> I'm glad that you... I was like, this is a really bad metaphor. I'm glad you laughed so hard at it. <laughs> or or it's like being given a map to a fake treasure uh, on, on the back of a kid's menu at a restaurant and then trying to use that map to drive yourself home. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the What's the... Um, Nick um, Nicholas Cage uh, Valentine's card? Uh, roses are red, violets are blue. You stole my heart. There's a map on the back. It leads to treasure. You have 24 <laughs> hours. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that. That's what this album is. Um, so okay, so basically we're we're pretty mixed, I would say, on this album. There's some stuff here that I think we really respond strongly to, and there's some other stuff that we really don't. And um, that's kind of a first so far for us in terms of these albums. So far, we've been mostly pretty favorable on almost everything. So this is, this is kind of a, a shift in how we talk about these things. This is the first Bruce yeah. Springsteen album that we've talked about that when we have a conversation about like best song or best albums of that particular year, uh, this, this is the first album that Bruce has released that I would not put in my top 10 from the year that it came out, you know, and that's a, that, that's a major shift. So, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, any final thoughts on this before we sign off and go on to do the bonus episode? Only that lawyers convince me um, that this this is this is this is responsible for what I love most about Bruce Springsteen, and that is that is that you know fifty years later he's putting out like vital music that is politically and socially important, and that is uh, it's sonically incredible and relevant. Yeah, that's that's my favorite thing about him is that is that he had those records that resonated so much with me. That he put out fifty years ago, years ago, and now he's putting out records that are still so important, important to me, and so important socially and politically and culturally. And I think 
that she is very right in saying that that doesn't happen if he does not figure out what he's trying to figure out here. Mm, yeah. Uh, and sometimes you have to watch an artist try to figure something out on stage. Uh, comedians talk about it all the time. It's like between between uh, their specials is, is they sometimes they have to go up and, and bomb and work through some stuff. And that's kind of what's going on here. He's not bombing, but I mean, he, he bombs a couple times, but uh, he also kills a few times. And yeah, it's just sort of. He's, he's publicly figuring it out while he's publicly going through a lot of turmoil in his own personal life. And so um, that's interesting. It is for sure. And and between this and the next album, like he's clearly reckoning with a couple of different things about who he sees himself to be and how he wants other people to see him as well. And so um, probably this, like our understanding of this album will continue to take greater shape as we talk about Lucky Town as since they were both released on the same day and, are I mean really informally these two albums together are kind of a double album in you know in a lot of ways so um, so that yeah. that that will be sort of an interesting that's how one. I think about them they yeah. look the same they have a similar like cover design I, I think they are and they weren't sold as a double album but I think I think they are as far as we're concerned well and you could make the argument that the fact that they weren't sold as a double album hurt record sales because what it did was it made people choose like if somebody's gonna go to the record store or like whatever, wherever they're buying music and they're only going to buy one album on that trip. They, they have to choose between this one and the other one. Whereas if he had just put this out as a double album, it would have like, people would not have had to make that choice and they would, they would have been able to just sort of reckon with the whole thing as a whole. So, um, yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, we're going to sign off. So thanks JB as always for, uh, chatting about some, some Springsteen and then, uh, we'll be back next time. We'll, we're going to talk about lucky town. And if you are, uh, one of our patrons, you can go over to the patron feed, and we're going to talk about our top five albums released by artists formerly associated with other uh, musicians slash bands. There should have been a, a easier way to say that, but there wasn't. So, anyway, that's what we're going to be doing There's not. On, on the bonus feed. So, uh, anyway, hope everybody has a good rest of your week. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you next time with Lucky.